When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. It's the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which according to, well, Rolling Stone, is the single greatest album of all time. And we have a jam-packed, star-studded show to celebrate that anniversary and discuss that album. We have Rob Sheffield and Andy Green here in the studio. Hey, guys. Hey, Brian. Hey. And calling in right now, we have David Crosby, who got to know the Beatles while I was in The Birds and ended up spending at least one day in the studio while they recorded Sgt. Pepper's. David, what do you remember about that day? I was there uh, several nights. Uh, they, they kept inviting me back. So I was, <laughs> I was there first. I was there several nights. And what I remember is, is Day in the Life. Uh, it was a, a, an amazing experience. And the account I had read is that they played you a finished version of Day in the Life, or do you recall actually watching them record some of that? Well, I remember they were doing vocals on something, because uh, I remember there was a vocal booth set up, and I remember being in it with them. Uh, so I don't, but I don't remember what the vocals were on. I, I think they had just finished Day in the Life, one of the nights that I, I came. They had just finished doing, I think, their first rough mix. And uh, they played that for me, which was a life-changing experience. Yeah, you were one of the first human beings on the planet to hear that song. So, and well, you had no than, idea what to expect them, yeah. other than them. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think you said you were you were pretty high too <laughs> at the time. Uh, so. Yes, I was. I was herbally enhanced at the time. So, so there you are, herbally enhanced, in Abbey Road, uh, being one of the first possibly the first outside person to hear this kind of landmark achievement in, in all of rock music. So besides being blown away, what, what do you recall of your reaction? Well, it's a consciousness expanding uh, thing to listen to a piece of music like that uh, for the first time, because it breaks all kinds of rules. Uh, you're not supposed to uh, jump into another song in the middle, uh, for instance. Uh, it, it's a brilliant piece of music, uh, two really brilliant pieces of music uh, stuck together in an amazing fashion. Um, and they executed it perfectly. I mean, it's just a, it's a perfect record. There's, there isn't anything you could have done to make it uh, better than it was. It was stunning. What was the atmosphere like in the studio? How how relaxed versus tense, or what was the feeling of being there? It was relaxed. It was funny. Uh, they were very proud of themselves. They knew what they had done, <laughs> and they knew that it was going to blow my mind right out of my ear, which it did, absolutely. Uh, and they enjoyed that. They were having fun. This was a, this was still very happy times for the Beatles. They were they were rocking. And you had gotten to know them in when they were in California a couple years earlier. Is that what happened? Well, actually, first I got to know them in England when we went over there with the birds the first time. They were very kind to us. It was a uh, kind of shocking. We were afraid to meet them, you know, because they were giants and we were little guys. And uh, we met them, and they were totally nice to us. They drove us home. They gave us rides. They invited us over for dinner. 
we became, as we said, herbally enhanced. Uh, we uh, we spent uh, some time together, and it was great fun because they are they were, you know much more real than we thought. We we were seeing them bigger than life. And the truth is, these were some pretty tough guys who had been through a lot, paid a lot of dues, and worked in some raunchy bars, and they were very real with us. They were very nice to us. Tough guys is really interests me. What, what struck you as tough about them? Well, you gotta remember, they had been playing, you know, three sets a night in German bars where they threw bottles at you if they didn't like the music. I mean, it's... They had paid some dues. Uh, they uh, they had you know done the thing with the you know driving in the van to the gig to play the thirty five people. They'd done that plenty of time, and uh, they were uh, much more real and much funnier and much more human than we thought they were going to be. We thought they were going to be godlike, and they turned out to be real guys and very nice to us. So what is your memory of hearing the complete Sgt. Peppers as an album? What were the circumstances? Uh, I took the shrink wrap off and put it on a turntable and <laughs> played it. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's quite an experience, man. They, you know, it's sort of like a concept record, but they stretched the envelope quite a bit. Uh, they didn't stick to sort of a plebeian way to plod through it. They, they really... They really stretched it. They really went very far afield. Uh, this, this is when they were, you know, they had blossomed as writers on uh, uh, Rubber Soul and Revolver to the point where they they were now just really in full flower as writer, and they were they were writing unbelievable stuff. You know, it was I, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I I I still listen to it. As a songwriter and recording artist and a contemporary, what in it felt like a challenge or, or a potential influence when you were listening to it? Listening to the writing. The execution was spectacular. You know, their recording techniques and the, and the production and the ability to sing incredibly, play r really well, that, that was all a given. The writing was stupendous. They had up their game writing. When they write about Rubber Soul, they started up their game writing, and then Revolver was a definite up their game. It was much, you know, several leaps higher. And then Sergeant Pepper was just like a, a mile further on. They're, they had hit their stride as writers, and they were incredibly good. There were things sonically, obviously, that were very new, uh, including things as simple as the drum sound. Jeff Emmerich was was miking closely and creating kind of punchier drums drum sounds than really had practically ever been heard on record. How how much of that stuff was registering with you uh, at the time? We noticed it right away. Drum sounds up till then had been uh, you know, stick a mic in the same room with the drums. Uh, they had been. Uh, <laughs> They were all, you know, uh, burdened with a whole lot of room sound. Uh, Emmerich got the actual sound of the drum without the room sound, and then modified the sound as he, as they wished with the, with reverb or, or echo. Um, but they mic'd the drums correctly in the first place, and uh, and also they knew how to mix it. They knew the drums had to be bigger, and they had to be better. What else sonically struck you about the record at the time? The guitar sounds. Amazing guitar sounds, the the clarity of the bass track. The the most stunning achievement was that they could do the bounce back and forths necessary to stack those vocals the way they did, 
right. with so few tracks. They only, I think they were, weren't they only used an eight track? Might have been four. Was it? Might yeah, have been yeah, four. four. So yeah. was Roger Pepper with his four. <laughs> Unbelievable that they could bounce back and forth because you lose a generation every time you do that. Right. And that they got the vocals to stack and and double as well as they did, and they did it beautifully. To do that under those technical circumstances, I mean, we we sit down with with Pro Tools or Logic, and we can you know do thirty vocals. It's no problem. Uh, there's all this room and it's easy and you don't lose a generation. They did it with the most primitive of tools and did the most startlingly beautiful work. One of the things that's hard to kind of convey or understand from the perspective of 2017 was the impact of this album. My understanding is it just hit like an atom bomb that you heard it everywhere, that every person under 30 basically in the world was was listening to this album, talking about this album, that it was being played in its entirety on the radio. Like, What was the, the impact like in your perception at that time? I'll tell you the time that it registered most strongly with me. I was on a campus in a college town. It might have been Madison, Wisconsin. It was a town like that. If it wasn't Madison, it was another college town like that. And I'm walking along through what must have been their their fraternity and sorority row or their, their student housing, and it was coming out of every single window. Wow. It was summertime there were, uh, or springtime, and, and it was coming out of every window, everywhere, all the time. Every time you heard music, it was that music. <laughs> it was pretty universal. Besides Day in the Life, what song or songs kind of stand out most to you uh, from that record now? Mm. Is it Lucy in the Sky on there? Yes. Yeah, love that. What I about mean, that one? Know, well, the way the music sounds, the sort of like things sound to you when you're on acid. <laughs> the Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, LSD. Uh, I don't think there's any question what they were talking about. Um, and it was uh, musically delicious. Just absolutely delicious. One of the greatest sort of time signature back and forth probably in, in, in pop music it, 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 there's, some, there's something so delightful about that shift in, in the chorus you know mm-hmm. that, yeah I, I think they were very inventive I, I, the overall thing man was they had hit their stride yeah they hit that record they were in full full gear they knew exactly what they were doing they had full confidence in themselves they were writing spectacularly well, and they knew it. And they had brilliant producer, brilliant production, brilliant engineers, and and they were willing to take the time to do it right. And man, did they! Well, David, thank you so much for for calling in and, and talking Sergeant Peppers with us. That was David Crosby, the the legendary David Crosby, and, and we're so grateful that you took the time to be with us today. Thank you, man. It's a pleasure. All right. Hope to hear from you again soon. And this is Rolling Stone Music Now. We're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper. And we will be back with some more surprises. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast. 
part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. So we're talking about the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper's, and man, we have a lot of surprises in this episode. We have Rob Sheffield here, we have Andy Green here, and also joining us live in the studio right now is Mickey Dolans from The Monkees. How you doing, man? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thank you very much. Really an honor to be here. We're delighted to have you here. So The Monkees released their own album like a week before <laughs> Sgt. Pepper's. Yeah which I believe was the second best-selling album of 1967. Yes, yes. We got knocked out of number one by Sergeant... What was it called? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Bilko. No, no. Uh, Pepper. That's right. Uh, Great album. I don't know whatever happened to that album. Just sort of disappeared like... You never never know. Right. You never know. And there was one um, week, right? I'm just saying... That there was one week in which in which headquarters it was number one, right? Yeah. And then out came Sergeant Pepper. Yeah, so you had seven days on top of the world. <laughs> hey, you know, that's a great claim to fame. <laughs> Get knocked out by that happened to me with a single I wrote, Randy Skousket, uh, yeah. that was released in England. Um, and it was uh, kept out of number one by like strawberry fields or something. But I don't I don't mind, you know. That's that's okay. Um, oh, I remember very clearly when it came out. Of course the buzz was around, it was coming out, and we were filming at Columbia ranch uh, filming the television show and we had heard that the uh, the first shipment was coming in uh, of the album to Wallach's Music City which was the big place in LA where you went and bought albums and so we sent a runner down to uh, uh, Wallach's Music City to get one of the first copies off the press and brought it back out to the to the set and we stopped production on the show and gave the album to the sound guy and he put it on a turntable and we, we stopped production on the whole show for like an hour or whatever it was to listen to Sgt. Pepper then we all went home suicidal <laughs> and uh, yeah it was great but actually my history uh, with it goes back b- before that uh, I was in England doing a press junket and and the publicists got Paul and I together for a Monkey Meets Beetle famous kind of press op thing. And he invited me to his house and made a veil. And um, we, just the two of us and a couple of, you know, roadies or, you know, friends and and just hanging out, had dinner and then watching television and stuff. And, and he invited me uh, to a recording session. Uh, the next day and um, to, to go back to his apartment for a minute um, David Crosby used the term herbally enhanced to describe his time with the Beatles the way you told the story before is that you and Paul got incredibly high and watched a basically busted television for three hours Does no it wasn't match? busted okay. it wasn't busted <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay. we did get incredibly high but okay. <laughs> it wasn't a busted TV it was better than okay. that he had figured out, and I don't know if he'd heard it from somebody, but back then when broadcast television was the only television you can get, um, it's it's a technological kind of a geeky thing, but um, when you would turn the channel uh, selector in between channels, you would get snow, mm. is what they called it. Uh, and it was uh, the remnants of this frequency, uh, the bandwidth of this frequency, and the bandwidth of this frequency, and you'd get spill. You'd get spillover. Mm. And I had never noticed this before, but if you were incredibly high, and you watched this for more than like 80 seconds, you started seeing images coalesce from the snow, and it looked almost metaphysical. It looked like it was some sort of psycho weird 
thing that you're getting out of the ether. But it wasn't actually, I figured out later, it was the, the spill between the two frequencies and you'd actually get partial images that were like spilling over from the frequencies and we must have sat there and watched it for like two hours, you know, one of those. So he, in, he invites me um, and I was of course just f stumbling all over myself trying to be so cool. <laughs> I had my autograph book in my, in my back pocket, you know. <clears throat> and um, he uh, very, very graciously invited me down to some sessions they were doing. I didn't say what at the time. I don't know how many people knew what was going on. And so the next day I, I get, I tell this story a lot in my show. I um, uh, got dressed up. I, I thought, I was expecting, I guess, some kind of psycho jello, <laughs> fun fest, Beatlemania, freak out, loving, being thing. And I got dressed up accordingly in my tie-dyed uh, underwear and my paisley bell bottoms and had my hair up in curls and all that shit and beads and, gla and linen-like glasses, things and so and I was, I don't know what I was expecting, but I looked like a cross between Ronald McDonald and Charlie Manson. <laughs> and the princess, black, a black princess limo, I remember very clearly, picks me up in the middle of the day. This is like two o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm already four sheets to the wind, you know. Right? And um, that drives me down to Abbey Road Studios. And I walk in and there's nobody there except the four guys and it looked like my high school gymnasium. Right. It was like, you know, fluorescent lighting. And they were in folding chairs with jeans and T-shirts just playing chunk-a-chunk-a-chunk. And of course, I'm like, where are the girls? <laughs> <laughs> and God, they must have thought I was such an idiot. And John Lennon, I remember very clearly, looks up at me and up on the stairs. He says, uh, hey, monkey man. <laughs> he called me monkey man. You want to hear what we're working on? <laughs> Terrible Liverpoolian accent. Pretty good, actually. You, it's yeah, man, really man, good. Man. And um, I'm trying to be so cool in my best hip wise, you know. Whoa, man. Farm out, man. Yeah, right arm. That's cool, man. Yeah, what do you... Let me hear it. <laughs> trying to be so cool. And I'll never forget it. He points up to George Martin in the booth. Uh, and in that studio at Abbey Road, the uh, control room was like on a, the, another floor up. And George Martin is wearing a three-piece suit in the middle of the afternoon because you had to. I found out they, all the technicians and producers had to, you know, be fully dressed. And um, he pushes the button on a four-track tape recorder, and he's in a three-piece suit. I thought that was ironic. <laughs> and um, I hear the tracks to "Good Morning, Good Morning." Mm. And um, then we sit down. Then all of a sudden it's four o'clock and a little guy in a white suit comes in with a tray of tea. We sit down at a little tea table, card table size thing, and we chat about, you know, and the stuff and the monkeys and what I'm doing, you know, blah, 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 just chatting. And I swear, like 20 minutes later, it was Lynn and he goes, right, lads, down the mines. <laughs> and uh, that was it, boy. 20 minutes for tea and then back to work. I hung around for a little while later and 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 listen for a little while. But years later, I look back and I realized that is how they managed to, to produce that incredible wealth of material uh, in a relatively very short time. And then I heard it was John. It was like he's a slave driver. You know, that Northern England uh, working class mentality, you know, down the mines, here we go, breaks mm. over, boom, and go back to work. And... Um, 
so I never forgot that. It, the, obviously, the song was burned into my my brain. And a couple of months later, we were filming the television show. One of the last episodes, months later, maybe, well, I can't remember exactly the chronology of it, but um, I, I had written and was directing an episode. And it starts out with the four of us uh, in our bedrooms sleeping. And uh, we had an alarm clock that I'd kind of invented, a Rube Goldberg alarm clock thing where the, uh, uh, I can't remember something would happen and a, uh, a needle would come down on a record player and play an album and I thought wow what a great song hey uh, call Paul and ask him if I can have the rights to Good Morning Good Morning for our television show mm. and I'll be damned he, we got it mm-hmm. and to my knowledge it's the first time they'd ever ever this is 67 right so, yeah, 67 or 8 first time they had ever let anything anybody play anything on a tv show or movie or commercial whatever whatever as far as i know and then i went back uh, to the big piano chord session the big party session where uh, at the end of the uh day in the life yeah yeah the end of uh, of day in the life and uh so i was there for that i uh, did, did i don't you, remember that play? so much i'm told i had a great time <laughs> <laughs> do you think you were one of the people hitting the e chord on a piano do you think you you because uh, they had a lot i of don't men. i don't think so i don't remember <laughs> <laughs> I remember sitting. I thought I remember sitting next to to Paul or Ringo or somebody and just chat. And Harry Nielsen, my friend, uh, my dear friend Harry, was there. And uh, but I remember that I had the a, a great pleasure of uh, years later. This is uh, decades later. I was asked to uh, go to Fort Worth and sing the opening, uh, the first song, "Day in the Life," uh, uh, with a sixty-piece philharmonic orchestra because of course they never performed it ever like that and i did the linen part the the high part and uh that was a big thrill (laughs) 20 years ago today (laughs) (laughs) and um boy i remember that sent chills up my spine you know that was amazing i still do some beatles songs in my uh in my show what do you remember about just this thing impacting the world? Well, I wouldn't have noticed how it impacted <laughs> the rest of the world. I mean, I was pretty uh, uh, secluded at the time and and sort of, uh, what's that word, uh, you know, I didn't get out much <laughs> right. as, I, as I couldn't, you know. Uh, but I can tell you what it meant to me. And I mean, uh, but all the Beatle albums meant a lot to me. I mean, I was just a huge fan right from the get-go because even before before the Monkey Show was cast, you know, um, I was a huge fan. I remember sitting in a my car with a, a portable, early, early portable black and white TV that you plugged into your cigarette lighter and had rabbit ears up on the on the roof of your car. And you try, you get a signal, and I remember sitting in my local hamburger, American graffiti hamburger, uh, car hop parking lot, watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and um, and I very clearly remember drive. This is '64 or five, way before the Monkees. Uh, Sixty. When when did they hit uh, the states? What year? 60, January '64. '64, yeah. right? So it would have been. And I remember Beatle Day on KHJ uh, radio, and it was huge. And uh, and I was working a summer job at a supermarket, like as a 
box boy or something <laughs> and i remember driving my little and i was singing i was you know i'd, I'd recorded a little single uh, uh, and uh, and i was out singing on open mic nights and this is before the monkey uh, audition uh, a year before it would have been or more and I remember driving down Ventura Boulevard going, my little Volkswagen bug on my way to the supermarket going, boy, would I like to be like one of the Beatles one day. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so it was huge, all the, all the albums. And we just we would sit and just listen for hours and hours. And I had one of the, the earliest uh, uh, color uh, uh, light color light things that used to change colors to the music very early early uh, version of that and when you've uh, had a few on and you're watching that 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 burns it into your uh, etches it into your memory but to this day you know i still uh, i like i say i do uh, i do songs i was with uh, paul a couple of years ago he invited me to a rehearsal for uh, uh, coachella uh, this is before Old Shella. This is <laughs> a, a year or two before that, down in the valley. And uh, he was—he's always been so gracious to me. And um, so I went to rehearsal, just him. And he was asking what I'd been up to, and he'd heard I'd been on Broadway and and done some Broadway musicals. And we got into talking about vocals and vocalizing. And I was saying how I had to start training for. Uh, to, for singing eight shows a week at the, at the palace where I'm going tonight to see to see Bet in in Hello Dolly, and um, I don't know how we got on the subject. We started talking about vocalizing and singing and and training, and I said, you know, I I still got a D above C. And he says, oh, you could sing, oh, darling. <laughs> and I, I said, I got a confession to make. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I do it in my show because it's one of my favorite songs ever. And I do it in the original key still. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how fast musicians worked then. And, and we think about yeah. a, a time when you musicians, are, you're all over the world in 1967 listening to each other and picking up ideas from each other and competing with each other. I'm not sure compete is the right word, Not and certainly not in our, in our case. We know, I, never, I never felt that we were in any kind of competition, and I, I don't know if, if, if they would have either, you know, at, you, at, at that level, at that, you know, camaraderie, it's, I don't know, I don't know exactly, how would you explain it? It's all like we're all on the same team. Yeah. And you used to cheer other, you know, maybe not so much these days, you know, when you hear but see things going on at the awards, you know, some of these these disgruntled idiots. <laughs> uh, yeah, only I can describe them. But I never felt that back then, so certainly. It was, you were always cheering each other on because very often you're playing on each other's, you know, each other's records. Um, and uh, very often, and now that everybody knows that the Wrecking Crew was 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 basically playing on everybody's re- record, but even the Beatles, of course, had other musicians on their stuff all the time, and, and from other groups, and you know, back and forth. And uh, there's a well uh, a song, one of my favorite uh, monkey songs, written by Carol King. Um, uh, as we go along, it's it's from the movie Head. You know the song? What a yeah, song. wonderful song, Carol King. And um, on that one, it's Ry Cooter and uh, Neil Young, and it was it was just so common. I we at RC Victor, you'd go from studio to studio, and there's uh, the Wrecking Crew playing on 
on the Beach Boy thing and then playing on our thing and playing on Mamas and Papas and then playing on the Birds and then playing on the Association and everybody was so I, it wasn't so much I don't remember it anywhere near like being any kind of competition it was always cheerful and, and you know you'd meet somebody and they'd go whoa your record went to number five great cool whoa <laughs> Excellent, you know. And you guys, the monkeys were number one for a week again until yeah. Sergeant Peppers came on. <laughs> Mickey Dolans, thank you so much for being here and, and talking Sergeant Peppers with us. And now we're going to be joined by today's final guest, Rick Nielsen, guitarist for Cheap Trick, who recorded an incredibly faithful live version of Sergeant Peppers a couple years ago. Rick, what was it like to have to really learn Sergeant Peppers to learn how to play it? Well, you know, um, even though we do cover songs, I'm we're not like a you know, like a sound effects band or, you know, <laughs> make exact copies of it. So, you know, I knew Sergeant Pepper in my head, but I'd never put my fingers to frets, you know, to the to the guitar neck to learn it. So I had to, I actually had to learn all this stuff. You know, I knew it, no, I knew it in my head, like I said, but I didn't know it to play it. So, I mean, I had to actually do, do some, uh, do a little uh, wood shedding on that stuff. Uh, it was the first time we did it, we did uh, we did two shows at the Hollywood Bowl for 19,000 people a night, and you can't go out there and start jamming the solo, you know, like, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> nobody booed us, but, you know, they, they would have had I not learned my, at, least, at least my stuff. One thing that I, I wanted to talk about today is just the seeming insanity on some level of the Beatles not putting Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields forever on Sgt. Pepper's. As, as someone who's made track listings in your time, <laughs> what do you make of that decision, Rick? Uh, well, you know, uh, like in our case, uh, they, they didn't want to put I Want You to Want Me on our first record. Uh, you know, it's like, <laughs> and so, you know, it just happens that way. You know, when you got a lot of songs, it's like you, you got to try to put a, a, a something cohesive together. I mean, when we did the Sgt. Pepper's, you know, we'd do the whole thing. It's like, it was all right. It was really cool. And then if it ends in day in the life, you know, it's like, well, we'd, what we would do is we went into, um, we did another song. We did Golden Slumbers, Carry That Weight in the End, mm. uh, as an, sort of, uh, to continue it on. And that was cool because, uh, you know, actually, because we had, uh, we had Jeff Emmerich, uh, was our engineer for every show we did. We did all, you know, a hundred shows or whatever. And he was uh, every one of them. And, he had said to us, he said, well, look, you know, some of those songs, they'd, they'd never played them together. They just, you know, put them, uh, you know, they, they were pieced together and all that stuff. And uh, so, well, he said we played it better than they did. Whoa. <laughs> I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go there, but that, that's what he said. He said, because. Well, you had a lot more reason, practice at it. Yeah. Yeah. He said the reason behind it, you know, like when they did some of that stuff, he said that they weren't even in the studio together anymore because it was like the time when they were breaking up. And they never played the stuff live. And he said, you know, like they were bickering and a few things here and there. But, you know, like when we did it, it's like it was it was difficult to do. And the stuff that I learned was like, you know, like there's certain things, in the, especially in the Sgt. Pepper, where the uh, the track was lowered and detuned, which is like way ahead of the game. Hmm. Like when the the very when it starts out, Sgt. Pepper, dan, 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 when it very first starts out, the guitar. Dan, 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 well, that's the guitars tuned down, and then so instead of playing it in A, you play it in B, and the strings are looser. So you know, it's like just a little dumb stuff like that that uh, that I wouldn't have known because you know I, I knew the stuff, but I guess I really didn't know it. Rick, do you think that Sgt. Pepper has a good case for being the greatest album of all time? <laughs> well, you're calling a lot of people and talking to a lot of people. Uh, it's got a it got a pretty good running chance there. Where would you rank it? 
Well, you know, it was the, the reason it was cool because it was kind of a, a concept album, you know, because to put all those songs together with the, you know, the, how the album cover was with the, you know, what they were wearing and the, and the, in the, in the, the pictures of, you know, nobody knew what it, what it was. I mean, there was like so much to learn and so much to listen to and, gee, what did this mean? What did that mean? How come they did this? And, you know, you know 50 years later, still asking that kind of questions. Like, it's, uh, you know, nobody... You know, I don't think any of our records are all <laughs> They wonder what they were doing the first day, and that was it, you know? I think John Lennon himself was one of the first people to point out that the, the concept really comes and, and then <laughs> goes and then comes back. It doesn't really carry through. You just sort of imagine that it does, which is interesting. Well, but, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like when they, you know, they shot the cover and they got all the, you know, these uh, satin suits and all this, this fancy stuff. It's like I bet if you would ask them a week later, you want to shoot that one again? No, they wouldn't. They wouldn't do it. It was, it was like it was the time was right there. Okay, okay, John, a week from now, do you want to wear that suit? I'll never wear that thing again. You know, it's like. I, I can imagine that happening. You know, it wasn't like they wanted to recreate what they already created. What they did do was make sure that every track ran into the next track, and that itself created the sense of, of a cohesive record and of a concept. What do you remember about hearing it for the first time and reacting to stuff like that? Well, I, I always liked that because I was like, uh, except when you're trying to learn a song, when you're putting the, the needle on the record and trying to, you know, figure out a solo or whatever back in the old days. Uh, but I kind of like that because it's like, you know, it's a big long pause. It's like uh, that's like the Yoko Ono. You know, fifteen minutes of silence. Okay, I got it after the first minute. You know, <laughs> and so it's like I, I like this stuff running together. I thought it was cool. Rob, what do you make of the this idea that the concept is, you know, it, it comes and goes, but we kind of impose it upon the, on the album. This, this interesting thing of it really being a, only a semi-concept record. The way it flows together really like a show and, and that each so, each song is so different. Yeah, well, we that's what we found too. I mean, when we did it, it's like there'd be certain songs where we'd be jumping around doing this and that and other ones were like this kind of, uh, kind of, uh, almost like a solo thing and then we had a, we had the uh, the Indian we had like the, the tablas and 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 uh, ginger shankar and tablas and all that stuff and it was like each each one was like a different setting almost it was like it was pretty interesting right it's not just a different style each one is it's kind of its own world it which really you had was. to learn to reproduce <laughs> track by track well yeah yeah when I when we were getting ready to do it we see we were asked originally to do it by the the Hollywood Bowl uh, Philharmonic people. They came to see us and they said, wow, you guys would be cool. Because Rick and Bunny had played with John Lennon and uh, we'd work with Jordan Martin. You know, they had enough stuff going there. And plus, Robin could sing everything. He could be Paul McCartney. He could be John, or he could be John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and and whatever. You know, like we had, we had enough stuff where they asked us if we would do it. And we, you know, okay. <laughs> Uh, you know, and and before you know it, we were, you know, we were on tour. And it's like, God, we better learn this stuff, and and it, it wasn't easy and stuff like that. But it was like, uh, now I don't even remember where, what your question was. <laughs> no, that's okay, Rick. I always think of Cheap Trick as in some ways in, embodying the promise of the earlier Beatles and and power pop in general. The punchy. Uh, more concise thing that they were doing before they, they got all complex. So what, what do you think of the argument that something was lost when they moved to Sgt. Pepper's, that, that they lost the purity of, of the early stuff? Well, you know, what they lost, um, they also gained. And But they never lost 
they lost, never lost it in their playing. Maybe for for a record, they were you know onto different things and smoking different things or what you know whatever was going on. <laughs> so it's like when the same you know there were probably the uh, even with George. I mean, he's so underrated, it's unbelievable. And it's like with McCartney and Lennon, it was like those are the best songwriters, pretty of all time. Of you know like. Of, of new and innovative things and also gee you know they they weren't afraid to show their roots that you know they played long tall sally and they, and they played money and they did this that the other it was like you know they could do it all what song was the most fun to play was it was it the the title track uh i think the the sergeant pepper reprieve uh-huh was the was the one that was you know because it's just it's like heavier it's the most cheap uh, trick it's the most cheap trick track yeah. <laughs> for sure yeah okay there you go <laughs> getting better is and, pretty uh, cheap trick too. that's true that's true getting better uh, sounds like you're playing guitar on it <laughs> uh as a matter of fact i did <laughs> <laughs> knew it so, you know yeah the one that it was uh kind of the i had the most trouble playing when i'm 64 Right, not because not because of its difficulty, but because of its schmaltziness. Right, it's the least cheap. We could we could rank each song <laughs> by its cheap trickness. But so listen, Rick, thank you so much for calling in and, and talking Sergeant Pepper's with us. It was an honor to have you. Yeah, you know, uh, I've got the I got the uh, the new box too, and I was going to put it on Instagram. I said, the, I got the Beetle box. Oh boy, I'm such a lucky man. Can't can't wait to play the gift of Beatles and their songs. Those fifty years flew by. Didn't seem that long. Three D cover and Vita for you know. I started writing all this junk down. I was like, "What am I doing this for? I'm gonna play it on and on and on and on and on and on and on." Indeed, Rick Nielsen. Thanks so much. This has been Rolling Stone Music Now. We were celebrating the fiftieth anniversary of Sgt. Pepper's, and there was so much to talk about. We'll be back next week at one p.m. on Volume, and in the meantime. Download us as a podcast at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to subscribe as well. And we'll see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.